DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. 2022. My name is Evie Norfell. And I'm Roland Norfell. And who would have thought we'd get to our third year of podcasts over 33 apps, Evie? Not me, I guess, is what you're trying to hint out there. You didn't think it would work. <laughs> no, but I do now and that's the important thing. Looking back on our portfolio of podcasts last year, we've got Business Case Investigations, the trilogy, the new format that worked really well. But you and I haven't been behind the mic hardly at all. No, it was a... It was a hard year for a few reasons, but we were also busy doing some other exciting things. Some really creative stuff and yet another example of you being wrong. <laughs> Go on. Well, you were saying that we should never run a conference uh, until... Uh, an online conference. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, if we, if we play back the tape, I probably did at some point say we should never run a conference. <laughs> but We should never run an online conference. <laughs> and we ran a very successful online conference, so where are you not wrong? Yeah, no, look, I'm fine. I'm willing to concede I was wrong about that. But but what was most shocking, I think, about running WTFH, where to from here, the national conference for, for the disability, disability sector, sector, according to us, yep. uh, was that we always thought running a conference online would just be like death to engagement. But we found the total opposite. It was wonderful. I mean, the access, they're accessible for people with disabilities, accessible for rural and remote, yet they're still interesting. The um, People were just shouting from the rooftop saying thank you so much because we can actually access this thing you've put on and we feel like we're part of it. But Mayor Thomas, our wonderful producer, was reminding us how the chat went off. Do you remember chat, Evie? Oh, yeah. It was like a separate conference happening in the chat. It just went nuts. It was so engaged. Everything around it was so engaged. And our sense of community at DSC, our broader community that DSC is part of in the disability sector, it just worked for us. So the automatic thing was run another one, and we did. We won't even finish the first one before and Dad's got the ambition that we're doing five next year. But we did do housing and home before we launched into the five for this year. Oh, I don't know. I think the five dream came earlier than that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, But we're getting back behind the mic this year. We haven't run out of interesting characters to interview, have we? Hopefully not. Definitely not. No, we sat down with Mayor and we've got a much longer list than we can get through in a year of podcasts. So we probably should be around for quite a bit longer. And if there's someone you think we should speak to that you think we don't know, hit us up in the email at admin at teamdsc.com.au. Yeah. We like making new friends. Yeah. We're friendly. So today's podcast is one we've had in the can since late last year because we didn't want to release it just before Christmas. When I was writing to Eddie Bartney to thank him for this particular episode, It struck me how important it is. For me, it stands in the ilk of the John Walsh podcast. Here's someone who's actually been a key creator of a lot of the concepts of the NDIS. ILC, local area coordination, a lot of the mental health thinking was done by Eddie. When we asked Leighton Jay about Eddie Bartnick, he's one of the three most important characters in Leighton's disability history in WA. So he's a really important character. What he's got to say is both current commentary and a historical, oh, I don't know what the word for it is, a historical record of how the scheme has got up and where, and where it's going. So I really value what we've done in this podcast. We did it in the height of another lockdown in Melbourne. That may show a little bit in our voices, but Eddie's got so much to say. So let's hear from our guest. Do, 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 do. Oh no, that came earlier. Welcome Eddie Bartnick. Yeah, hi everyone. Eddie, it's, it's fantastic to have you on board for the podcast. I, I've wanted to talk to you for a very long time. I've met you once at a conference uh, 
a couple of years ago now and know of you from your history at the NDIA and also as the Mental Health Commissioner of WA. One question to begin with, has, has all of your career been in the disability space? Um, look, disability has been a constant thread in my career um, all the way through and I had a very long and very productive career with the WA government over about 30 years. That was really good but even from a very early stage I was keen to very keen and intentional to learn more broadly. So for the last 20 years, I've been spending at least a month uh, each year doing consultancy overseas. And yep. so uh, I've been to quite a few different countries. So I've learned a lot in that regard. But, but also, particularly the last 10 years, I've sort of moved out of mainstream disability. I ran the Department for Communities in Western Australia for a bit, Mental Health Commission, the work with the NDIA, and, and also... The, the international work with local area coordination has been very broad, not just disability. It's been older people, mental health, chronic health conditions, domestic violence, very, very broad. So, and probably the last thing is I've also last 10 years been working in education through the university sector on, on the board of Cowan University. So I've had a pretty good look at sort of disability and mental health, you know, from many lenses. Gosh, you've raised about 15 topics that we want to talk to you about today. So that's just perfect. One of, the, one of the first ones is I, I was there when you were, you were the first mental health commissioner in WA and then my, my feeling was that the NDIA as a newly formed organisation sort of plucked you out of WA and dropped you into, it was Canberra at the time before it became Geelong, to work on, what did they get you to work on? Uh, I've got, I got three, three important pieces of work. One was to lead the strategy about bringing people with psychosocial disability into the scheme which was a pretty much brand new idea. The second one was the original work on the ILC or information linkages and capacity building um, policy and the first commissioning framework. And the third one was locally recoordination, sort of design and implementation. So I had three sort of very significant pieces of work. And three key themes of our podcast today. So let's take them one at a time, Eddie, and begin with psychosocial disability you better than anyone would know that it was very much an afterthought the scheme wasn't built the legislation wasn't written to to cater for people with psychosocial disability was it a mistake that this many years on to to pull them in at the last minute or was the right thing done oh no no i'm, I'm very committed to this and um, even at the time when the productivity commission were doing their public consultations there was a very strong push from the sector across the country to include psychosocial disability and we've got to remember that psychosocial disability is included in the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So, so there is some contention about whether it should be in or out, but the majority view uh, was that it should be. And I also had very first-hand experience about the, the very dire situation of people with psychosocial disability in the mainstream mental health system. A lot of people weren't getting much at all. And I saw this opportunity of coming to this game to be an enormous opportunity. So continuing on the psychosocial disability for a tick, Eddie, uh, are we getting it right now? Uh, look, I, I, think, I think it's a work in progress. And I think it, it had a very contentious beginning because there was the wind down of various other programs, particularly Commonwealth programs that were often supporting a much broader sort of clientele. I think if you keep your eye on the numbers, I think, you know, there's over 40,000 people now in the scheme. I think, you know, various estimates, minimum 30, maybe even 50% of those were not coming directly from another service. So, so an enormous number of people have had an opportunity to, um, you know, have some say over their life, to start to choose their supports and to be entitled to support. I think that that's a very, very big difference. Um, but I just want to remind people that 
people coming in with mental health conditions had a very low starting point. All the original work on the outcomes for different disability groups coming into the scheme are people coming from a very disadvantaged base. And so it's not surprising that it's taken some while and some time for the scheme to sort of get this, you know, more, more, more progressively right. But some of the, the recent work, particularly around recovery coaches and recovery framework, I think, you know, very, very important. I think a lot of people listening, Eddie, would really um, struggle to understand what psychosocial disability is. They just, I think we just lump it in and think mental health, you know, people with um, psychosocial issues. But can you help us with that construct and what it really means, psychosocial disability? Yeah, so, so people that have significant mental health uh, challenges, you know, there's different trajectories for people, even with quite significant uh, mental health conditions. People, um, of course, can and do recover. But for a, a smaller percentage of people, despite all the treatment and support, uh, people are left with a residual long-term disability, an impairment to their functioning. And, and, that's, and, and so, so the lens that's applied on this is, this is not for anybody with a, with a mental health challenge. It's for people who have had um, significant challenges. They've had uh, significant treatment and support. And despite everybody's best efforts, uh, they have a residual disability. And so, they, you know, typically people with uh, long-term schizophrenia, significant depression, uh, bipolar disorder, they're, they're the typical sorts of uh, conditions. But again, not everybody with those conditions would follow this tra trajectory. Eddie, you mentioned the Information Linkages and Capacity Building Program, the ILC program, a minute ago. And some of our listeners who are newer to the NDIS may not have even heard of it because it's certainly dropped off the radar of public conversation in Gone recent underground times. underground almost. <laughs> so I have two questions for you, Eddie. Can you give us the elevated pitch of what the ILC program is and then what the hell has happened to it? Where is it? Yeah, so in the original design of the scheme, I think there was like four and a half million people with a disability of which there was a, a, a smaller number, like 640,000, I think is the latest estimates, that would qualify as people with significant and likely to be permanent disabilities. So you've sort of got like a tight population that were envisaged to become participants in the scheme and then a broader population of people with disabilities that have got less sort of ongoing impact or might be short term. And so when they sort of described the scheme, they, you know, um, tier one was all Australians, tier two was this broad population of people with disabilities, the four and a half million, and tier three were, the, were deemed to be the, the participants in the scheme. So it is this sort of broader population of people uh, with disabilities. And so the aim was to have a separate funding strategy that could support projects in the community that would support this group of people, this broader group of people. And there were a number of different streams to the, to the strategy. Local area coordination and the early childhood partners was, a, was an underpinning strategy, and they would do work in the community to support this broader group. There was individual and family capacity building and then work to do with community mainstream capacity building. So the aim was to have, you know, a funding strategy that would, would build the capacity of individuals and families, but also of community and mainstream and business organisations. And so it was a bit messy to start with because it, it sort of came from an historical base of different things happening in different states and territories and took a little while to get into a some more of a national um, strategy. It did transfer to the uh, Department of Social Services last year as part of the ongoing development of the NDIS. And so those grants now are administered through Department of Social Services. And I understand, I think they're coming up to the refresh of the strategy. 
And so that's something that they're working on at the moment. So we, we're all a bit concerned that the DSS really doesn't know to handle those grants and is not going to do them particularly well, but we won't put words in your mouth. Those are words from my mouth, Eddie. And I think we should move on and focus on local area coordination because that, in a lot of ways, I, I know you as, as the father of a lot of the work in local area coordination. Started in Western Australia, it grew to the UK, it's spun around Ireland, Scotland, um, more recently in Singapore. There's a couple of questions. Can, can you give us the, you know, the first principles if people don't really know what um, local area coordination is, what it's meant to be in its purest form? Because you've, you've just written a book on it, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, with my colleague Ralph Broad from England. And so, like, at, at its simplest sort of idea, so the, the charter or purpose statement is um, to develop partnerships with individuals and families as they build and pursue their goals and dreams for a good life and with local communities to strengthen their capacity to include people with disabilities as valued citizens. So at, at its heart is this sort of like, you know, working with individuals and families, this idea about building and pursuing a, a good life, but also working at the local community level. It has a series of 10 principles, um, very much framed around the, the rights of people, the natural authority, the importance of family, friends and community networks. Sort of, it sort of builds a picture of, you know, starting with a person, family, friends, community, and then positions um, specialist services as being important in people's lives, but sort of complementary to and should be supporting those more natural things in people's lives. And then there's sort of like the, the, the role of the local area coordinator. So, so pretty much it's a very simple idea, a very elegant idea. Basically, you find a really good local person. They're based in a local community and they get to know and work with local people with disabilities, the broad range of people. And they also, because they're connected to the community, would also work with and understand how local community organisations and services work. And then they would do a number of things like in the right order. And they sort of start with getting to know people and building effective relationships, uh, supporting people with, you know, with information and sort of helping people to clarify their goals and strengths and needs, helping people to build their voice and, and supporting advocacy strategies, then sort of working at a community level um, to build inclusive communities through partnership and collaboration, helping people use their personal networks, really strengthening informal supports and personal networks to develop practical solutions and then assist uh, supporting people to access um, funding and specialist services. And so the, the key here is that these are, you know, you start in the right place. You uh, start by getting to know people and developing a positive trusting relationship. You're connected to the community. You ask the right questions about a good life and what's important to people. And then you work through the strategies. And I think one of the challenges has been that, um, particularly the way in which it's been framed in the NDIS has been that, you know, the, the, the functions and the strategies are there, but they're not necessarily connected. And so, and then locally coordinated are not necessarily always based in their local community. So some of the, some of the fundamentals, if you describe it as, as a collection of things that people do, you know, the contracts have allowed people to break the role up into different pieces and have people doing different things. The way I saw it from the outside, I know when you're as close to it as you are, is that Great concept, simple and elegant in Western Australia, local area coordination. Start with the person first and connect them, as you say, connect them to the things that are important to them. With specialist services is very much the secondary option. So both the Productivity Commission and the National Disability Insurance Agency thought, great idea, let's, let's do that. And they, they brought you across to do it. But in bringing it across, they, they, they took it from being simple and elegant to banking it 
more and more complex. And in your book, you actually say that a number of key challenges came in, came out pretty quickly. And I'll, I'll read this from your book, including different understandings of what good looks like in local air coordination, the availability of a suitable workforce, reorienting the role back from the initial focus on planning and funding during transition, and I'll come to that again in a moment, and the need for a national network approach and technical support to build greater consistency across the 13 partner organisations. So there's a bunch of things in there, but one is there's a bunch of different organisations doing it differently. And we were involved in one of the first, I think the first tender for local area coordination. We were helping an organisation get ready for it. And just as it's about to drop or as it drops, we notice that planning's been put there in as well. And it's like, holy shit, this is not compatible with local area coordination. Am I doing it in injustice? Hey, look, you know, I, I think we need to understand what planning is and the various components of planning, because if I, if I went back to, you know, our work in Western Australia, planning was clearly part of what local area coordinators do, because knowing people, they were in a great position to assist people to, you know, plan for what was okay. important to them and come up with, you know, ideas and all that sort of stuff. But then the actual the mechanics of some of the funding processes and the approvals often then went to another process. So it wasn't as though local area coordinators didn't have a role in planning, just that if you load them up with too much bureaucratic stuff, you're going to lose the, you know, the very essence of what you're wanting them to do. Yeah. And so, so I think there's, there's a fair bit of discernment and subtlety here about what are uh, appropriate, suitable planning roles and what are roles that the organisation, the NDIA would need to take on in terms of some of the more technical and approval sort of elements. But, but it's always been, you know, certainly in the West Australian example, which I, I was very familiar with for a very long period of time, it was absolute bread and butter that local area coordinators would support people to build their plans. Where people chose to self-manage, local area coordinators supported those people to do that. And provided you kept the ratios reasonable, then, that, then they were able to do that, but also, most importantly, still do all the important informal support, community networks, all those sorts of things. So, so I think local area coordination comes as a bit of a package. It's like what you want them to do, the ratios, how many people to work with, where they're based, and how they sit within the system. So I don't think it's sort of, you know, not necessarily a very black and white sort of matter. Eddie, do you think there's any chance to walk LAC back to that original vision or is the, the horse bolted at this point? Hey, I'm the eternal optimist. I think I've been around long enough to know there's good times and bad times. And what, what I am very focused on is um, the NDIS is um, really unique in the world. The biggest opportunity we've ever had for a lot of people to get good support. And most countries around the world are pretty envious. So clearly we've got teething problems. I think, you know, the scheme had a really challenging start with all the different bilaterals and timings and, you know, all those sorts of things never too late to go back to proper good design and implementation and so you know my view would be that if we could start to, to build some demonstration sites that created you know the the right conditions for local area coordination to flourish and to be effective and to evaluate those accordingly you know i'm 100 percent confident that we would start to see you know a greater level of trust from, and the people that were there to support and uh, a greater level of value for money. And, you know, uh, this, this would be a big part of the, you know, the challenge of the scheme at the moment about sustainability, where the plans are just sort of going up and up and up. You know, so, so I'd be carving out, if anyone in the NUA is listening at the moment, you know, I would be carving out some 
some demonstration sites and getting back to the basics and the evidence. One of the reasons the National Disability Insurance Scheme was designed was to move away from the old notion of um, big charitable organisations capturing disability and delivering it in a particular model. And that's what we wanted to move away from, more to a market-focused approach to um, disability. Yet when we've done the Partners in Community program, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars annually spent on that program, it's given to 13 organisations that range from private equity that talks in the billions of dollars, they run a lot of the partners in community, down to some pretty clunky old charities that are doing it in some pretty clunky old ways and everything in between. How do you feel about that um, mix and match of partners in the community, Eddie? Does it work? Look, if I, if I probably went back to, you know, the basics, I, I think where I've seen local area coordination work best has been when it's had one which has been, you know, part of the, the governing organisation because then you have a much more direct uh, feedback loop from the experience of individuals and families and communities back into the organisation and then the system learns and changes based on that. So, so, so the ideal situation is that, you know, they're, they're part of the overall organisation. Now, the reality in Australia was that was too big an ask at that point in time, and there was, you know, community capital that could be used through the partners process. I think the logic I would use would be that you would want some um, additional safeguards that if you're contracting out to other organisations, because if you use sort of standard contracting methodology, it's sort of, you lose a lot of the connection. And I've seen this in different parts of the world where you're more at risk of disconnection and the closer you are, the closer the connection to, to the government folks, the better. The second thing is that in the United Kingdom, in England and Wales, where they've got the England and Wales uh, Local Coordination Network, you've got local coordination being delivered through, I think it's about 15 different local authorities, but there's a very, very strong uh, commitment to uh, fidelity and integrity of design and implementation and training. You know, so... So I'd come back to, you know, we do, if, you, if you're going to have multiple organisations, you do need a strong network approach and a collaboration around, you know, quality and consistency. Otherwise, local coordination can look and feel different in different parts of the country. And that's very confusing for people. One of the um, things that's happening with the current market engagement information page, paper that the NDIA has released is They've talked about some principles for the Partners in Community Program and principles for LAC, and I just want to read them because they're so freaking good. Basically, the program is place-based, relationship-based, person and community-centred, outcomes-focused, and strengths-based. So you wouldn't have any significant problems with those, I don't think, Eddie, because you would have helped build a lot of that. But how do we get from here to there? And what do you think of that market engagement information paper if you had a chance to have a look at it? Uh, yeah, okay. So, no, so I think... You know, you know, of course, I've, I've looked at a lot of this documentation. and um, So you can have a series of, of like ideas like that. And you can have, I think there's eight functions they've listed for the partners programs. Yep. And you look at the functions and you look at the, you look at the sort of the, the concepts and think, well, that sounds pretty good. Now, but the bit that for me is missing is the connectedness of those functions and those ideas. And so, and so I think part of my problem is that if things are written in a way where you can then say, well, I'll have one local coordination do this part of the job, another person do the next part of the job, another person will do the community work. You've sort of, you've sort of created this disconnectedness. And um, what I do know, 
that people really loved and valued was the, um, the, the, the development of a positive trusting relationship where people got to know their local area coordinator, the person had a, had a job they loved, they stayed, they were part of the community, and they didn't have to tell this story over and over and over again. And I think, you know, I hear a lot of stories now about the turnover of local area coordinators and, the, and also the fact that you might get a different person each time. And so if I go back to the beginning, you know, you make a decision about somebody having a plan, say, for $100,000 $100, a year for 30 years. That's like a $3 million investment. And if at, the, if at the front end of that, we don't really know that person incredibly well and have built the best possible plan, you can sort of see how people can have money, but it may not, you know, speak to the most important needs and may not generate the most value. So, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence about the better you start at the beginning, the better you get to know people, the more you help people build a vision of possibility and try things out, then you end up with a better product. What you're talking about, Eddie, is really outcomes that rely on on trust, though, and those relationships built on trust. But trust is very hard to build at a systemic level, isn't it? It, it, it is, but it's it's not not impossible to do. And you know, so, so I think if, if you're intentional about good design and implementation, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like in Western Australia, where we're working with people with their direct, direct funding, and we had a, sort of a, a trusting relationship where we trusted them, you know, so we had varying levels of accountability, you know, for the plans and that, and we sort of graduated, but we sort of basically trusted people to do the right things. We were in contact and knew them well. And basically they knew that if they didn't need their funding, they could return that to us to be used by other people. And should their circumstances change, they'd be able to access that funding again. So we had a, you know, a regular thing where people would be returning funding to be used by other people because they knew other people had needs, there wasn't enough money. And should they, their circumstances change, they would also be supported. So, so that's one example. But the other example I really like is in the UK, in England and Wales, they've been implementing a community-based recruitment process. And so part of the introduction of local coordination to a local authority is working with local people with disabilities and local citizens to uh, be part of a community recruitment process. And so by the time the person actually hits the ground, they are known to the community, the community has confidence and trust. And so you, you, sort, of, you sort of build from that position of introductions and trust and, and connection. So, so I think a lot of it goes back to you know, the basics of good design and good implementation. I was speaking to someone just last night who was one of the original designers of the scheme and I asked him what he thought of where we are currently and he said it's a lack of trust and I think if you asked a bunch of people who are fairly close to what's going on across the organisation, across the NDIS at the moment, I think trust would be a really big word that people would bring and the lack of it, what's happened, the damage that was done uh, basically through Minister Roberts' approach and that was the way that was implemented through the agency. So. I think that's a major challenge and maybe we'll leave yeah, that I as... I don't think you need to look any further than the, the public's response to and the sector's response to the proposed legislative changes. A lot of it could could go one way or could go the other and there's just no foundation of trust for people to feel comfortable that it'll be implemented in It's phase. so much easier to destroy trust than build it, as we know, but let's go on to another question, Evie. Yeah, and hey, look, I'm pretty, you know, I'm sort of part of me is visionary, part of me is very practical, but... You know, if we get the right people alongside people with disabilities and families in the local communities and you start to develop a relationship and you do what you say you're going to do and you sort of start in the right place with things that are most important to people, then, you know, it's all you can do. You can start again. You can, you can build trust through those relationships. Um, so, you know, 
at the time now when people are thinking about the scheme again that this sort of this importance of you know this this so there's always things that we can do you know so I'm sort of hoping that primary personal connection and relationship and getting to know people as, as being sort of the, you know the cornerstone of building the scheme. And speaking of relationships, one of the key objectives of the LAC program that I was interested to read about is about reducing the drift of people with disability away from their families and their communities. Can you tell us a little bit about how the LAC role is supposed to do that? Yeah, hey, so if I went right back to the to the original local area coordination site in Albany, um, what was happening was a regional area and people were having to go to the city to go to school or, you know, to get services, whatever. So because it was very much this sort of fitting people into the services sort of mentality at the time. And so by basing somebody locally and having flexible funding, we were able to start building supports around people where they were and also to then facilitate people coming back to their community. So, so I think this thing about, you know, it's not like one size fits all. It's like every person is unique and you build something around each person. Now, now I don't want to be naive here, but like, you know, we have got communities where we've got limited services and we've got challenges. And so I think there's still more work to be done around building a greater range of opportunities for people. And there's, there's a great idea coming out of England that I, I really like from an organisation called Community Catalysts. And they work on sort of economic and social enterprise development. And they host the local area coordination network in England and Wales. And they do work going into communities that, that often have unmet social care needs people with disabilities, older people and other sort of uh, situations and lack of services. And they've gone into those communities and helped people to build their own small social enterprises to provide support to, to people in the community. And that's been a very effective um, strategy for both better supporting vulnerable people, but also building uh, local uh, enterprise and economic development. So, so there's room to do, but I think there's still some, still some um, layers of things that we can, we can be doing. Eddie, you've had a lot of different roles in your career inside and outside of government, but thinking about some of those roles you've had inside government, has it paid off? Hey, I think the answer to that would be at times definitely so. So if I thought about, I had a, an absolute dream run with the Disability Services Commission, we were able to build and develop and grow locally coordination from one site right to a statewide service and really implement a lot of whole system reform. So, so that was a really, really good period. My period at the Mental Health Commission, um, where, where I had the, the budget for mental health and, was, and I was able to very directly sort of start to rebalance the system from the medical treatment hospital end to much more uh, person-centred, sort of a recovery-based, sort of community-based support for people. We'd never been able to do that from the outside because, you know, I had an opportunity for nearly four years with the budget to you know, to uh, come up with a new way of um, supporting people and, and to start to shift the money. And hopefully the legacy of that is still sort of um, happening. And then I think with, with um, psychosocial disability in the um, NDIA, look, a lot of people said this would never work, you know, and I had, I had paid one or two of the Australian for about a week at one point where there's a lot of stuff flying around in Victoria in the early days yeah, about, yeah. you know, people are going to die and it's going to be a disaster and all that sort of stuff. And... Uh, you know, it's very, very solid on my beliefs around people's psychosocial disability, just like any other person with disability, you know, can take a greater role in uh, directing their own life and, you know, to, and, and, uh, and for us to, you know, better engage their family and friends and networks and to give them more, more sort of choice and control. And, and so, you know, so I'm really pleased now, over 40,000 people are in the scheme. It's not perfect, 
but a lot of those weren't getting anything at all. And so I was very, very proud that I was able to be in the scheme to pull that off. Look at other times, it's, it's become incredibly frustrating for me. And I think my own view has been get in, push hard, and then if it's not working, then get out and work from the outside. And I think that's probably my, my sort of philosophy. So Eddie, I think we're getting towards the end of the podcast, but I'd, I'd like to talk about some of the outcomes of local area coordination where it's done well. They're noted in your book, but I absolutely believe them as well. And so the, the key outcomes I've picked up, people can become more connected, less isolated, more connected to family, friends and community. They can find their own practical solutions and feel more in control of their lives and, and decisions about their lives. They need less services and less formal support and they're more able to contribute and, and be included. And they're, they're pretty big outcomes when the scheme is really on song. So do you believe? Are you a true believer? Is it, you know, can the scheme do those things? Yeah. Hey, and look, in, in the book that we've just published, there's a whole chapter on evaluation. And, you know, like in, in the early days, I think from my end, there were at least 30 published studies of local area coordination in the, in the West Australian sort of context. But the, the, the people in the UK in particular have taken it to a whole new level. I think it's at least 15 uh, recent published studies, almost all university-based, with, with, with sort of very strong academic rigour. And it's really actually been quite mind-blowing to me to see that very strong similar outcomes have been demonstrated in different, in different countries, in different localities, but also not just people with disabilities, like people with mental health challenges, older people, people with physical health conditions, young people leaving state care. So, so I think there's something very powerful about this, this concept of local area coordination because the evidence is that it, you know, you get the, if you do it the right way, you get the same outcomes in different countries and with different population groups and, and over, over different periods of time. So, so I think the evidence is very, very strong and speaks for itself. So Eddie, I'd like to loop that back to where you started in that doing it the right way, let me, if I get this right, tell me if I get it wrong, tell me, but basically doing it right is simple and elegant, keeping it connected and holistic. It's not fragmenting it, it's not overloading it. I'll stop putting words in. Is that, is that a reasonable? Yeah, 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 yep, yep. And, and in, in the book, we've actually broken it down into what we call building blocks around uh, basic design and then sort of implementation and then also scaling. So, so we, we, yep, we yep. now know, you know, some projects get started, but they can't be sustained. So we've done a lot more work around how to build the sustainability question into the basic design. But, but now I think we've now got pretty strong evidence about, you know, the basic design building blocks, how it's designed, you know, the connected role, the, the location in the community, the ratios, you know, the training, all those sorts of things. I, I think your summary was a good summary. Yep. And so, Basically, are you consulting in this space? Like, will you assist organisations? Hey, yeah, yeah. Look, so, so, so Ralph and I and then our colleague Nick from the England and Wales uh, Local Coordination Network, between, between the three of us, have got the, the more deep-seated sort of you know, capacity around technical support. So we have found that, you know, if, uh, for, for people to achieve a high degree of integrity and effectiveness, it does help if you've got people that have got deep, deep experience Kind of makes a lot of sense to have people who've been on the journey, doesn't been it? Been on the journey, that's right. Yeah. So if people are interested, then um, I'm happy to be the contact point for people in Australia, New Zealand. I work very closely with Ralph and Nick. We run one of our strategies is to be running an international event each year. 
to bring together the local coordination sites from around the world. We've just got Singapore started, we've got stuff in New Zealand, stuff in Ireland, you know, Scotland, for example. So, you know, we've got quite a few, some have drifted off a bit, but we're hoping to get people back on track and sort of, you know, better connected and, and for people to see that, you know, what good looks like, you know, across all the countries is very, very similar. So let's finish with the plug for the book. So I've read the book. It's terrific. It does both the design elements, the structural elements, what you need to, to get it right. You've also put in a bunch of case studies so that people can see where other people have tried to do it. What's the name of the book and where can people find it, Eddie? The book is called uh, Power and Connection, subtitled The International Development of Local Area Coordination. You can find it on the Centre for Welfare Reform website. But if you just plug it into Google, you'll find we did the official launch and it was published through the Centre for Welfare Reform in England. But it's available on um, Amazon, Dimex, and most of the bookstores. It's all this print-on-demand system now, so you can you can order it and and uh, they'll print and and deliver. So, and if people have any problems or want to buy a whole bunch of them, they just contact me, and I, I might be able to organise a better deal for people. So, um, and in, any proceeds are all going to the England and Wales Local Coordination Network for local coordination development. Fantastic, Eddie, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eddie. It's been wonderful to have some time to chat to you. It's a great podcast. Thank you, Eddie. Thank, thank you both. Thanks for the great work you do in the disability sector. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Eddie. So see you next time. Hey, Evie, before we do the outro, can we just go on to the Supported Decision-Making Conference? We sure can. It's a fantastic conference. It's about how do we support people with disabilities to make the best possible decisions that they want to make in their life, the best speakers, the best people. It's in March of this year, and you can find it on our website. Yep, teamdsc.com.au. And now you can do the outro. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. If you've liked this podcast, please feel free to leave us a five-star review. I didn't think we were doing that anymore. We don't have any. Oh, yeah, we do have one. (laughs) It's left by my girlfriend. (laughs) And you can subscribe if you want to, too. teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.